It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, and that, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and you could also be listening now on the iHeartRadio app. And if you download that app and type in our coordinates, you can take us with you anywhere you go. It is a pleasure to have those listeners on other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth with us as well. Or if you're listening on our SoundCloud or your favorite podcast platform, welcome. It's great to have you with us. It's also a pleasure to welcome back to the show uh, Dr. Uh, Philip Loring. Now, I've had Philip on the show oh about a month ago, and that was with another project that he is associated with called Coastal Roots Radio. And uh, he, as well as uh, Dr. Hannah Harrison and Emily DeSouza, were on talking about Coastal Roots Radio. But today, it is a pleasure to have uh, Philip Loring with us to discuss his book, He has a book, and it is entitled Finding Our Niche Toward a Restorative Human Ecology. And it is from the initial conversation that I had in meeting uh, Philip that he offered to send me a copy of his book, and I was was very gracious and, and honored that he would send it to me. I've been reading it, and I have to tell you, from the very first time I picked up the book, it was, it was so full of stuff. <laughs> I I couldn't just breeze through this thing. I had to read it very carefully and I found it very engaging and I found it very enlightening because it, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And so it's a pleasure to have Dr. Loring with us to talk about the book. And uh, so Dr. Loring, welcome to the show, first of all. Thanks, David. It's nice to be here. Now, I'd like to start a little bit about not not so much the book, but it will lead into the book, and that is how how you got into this line of work that you do. Because, you know, you are, of course, uh, the principal investigator for Coastal Roots Radio, but you're also a professor in the Department of Geography, Environment, and Geomatics at the, uh, at the, the University of Guelph. That's right. And my training, incidentally, um, uh, through graduate school is in anthropology and ecology. And I did all of that training in Alaska, actually, at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, uh, where I um, lived and worked for about 10 years. And of course, a lot of that story is in the book that we'll talk about soon. Uh, but I, I went there, I moved there. Uh, it was quite a departure from my uh, my previous life, which was as a computer programmer for first telecommunications and then healthcare. Uh, and and while it was a good job and it paid the bills, it, it was very unfulfilling. And I, and I, I shifted gears for for a number of reasons. Now, the title of your book, Finding Our Niche, uh, Finding Our Niche, it, why, why choose that particular word? Well, there's a, definitely as a social scientist, there's a, a noticeable influence of, of ecology in this book. And, and I studied ecology in grad school. And one of the things, you know, when I moved to Alaska and I started taking graduate courses in ecology, I was really dismayed by it first, was all of the beautiful metaphors that there are in ecology for how species relate to one another and relate to the rest of their environments. Mm. And niche is one of them. Niches, you know, there's 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 the the actual niche that all the different places, all the different environments a species could can live in, but then it's also its realized niche where it's living. And and it's not just like a house that you build that, that's yours and and 
and no one else's. A niche is sort of an intersection of all of these different species coexisting in time and space. And through really elegant, interesting interactions that, you know, mutualisms that I talk about in the book. And, and when I was taking these classes, I remember thinking to myself, you know, with the burden of environmental challenges of humanity sort of resting on my shoulders, wanting to make a difference in the world. I remember thinking to myself, why can't we have these beautiful relationships too? And the more time I spent thinking about it and talking to people and learning from people, I realized, well, we can. And where it starts is trying to relearn what our niches can be. Niches not that exclude everything else, but that work with Mm. everything else around us. Mm. You know, the other thing that you start off in the book by talking about is is when you say we, and and you, you were specifically pointing out how you are separating the mainstream uh, society uh, from the indigenous people? Well, I can only really speak for myself and, mm-hmm. and I spend and, and my experience and identity as a settler right. uh, in North America. And, you know, my, my long heritage is from Scotland and Ireland. Um, I don't really connect with those places sort of in a meaningful way, going back to the importance of place, you know, cause I've only been there briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, that's who I am here. And, and so when I when I tell my stories, I'm telling my stories as a settler, and I'm trying to understand sort of the riddles of how you know the, the problems created uh, through settler colonialism, and, and reconcile what my own identity can be moving forward as somebody who wants to contribute to solutions. So yeah, very much we is me speaking for for myself as a settler, settler, you know, quote unquote, Western mm-hmm. culture. Yeah, and I thought that was that was interesting because, of course, you you do uh, talk greatly in the book about the indigenous perspective, and you you talk about uh, people you've met and spent a great deal of time with, and and uh, and so that becomes you know quite important not only to you but to the to the book itself. Yeah, and it was interesting and a challenge at first writing the book because one of the things that I learned from some of the people that you mentioned, the very influential individuals that I met working, Indigenous individuals that I met working in Alaska, was to recognize which stories were mine to tell and which ones weren't Mm. and how important it was understanding who was doing the telling, the situation, the context of the telling of a story. And so when I sat down to, to write this book, it it really troubled me, you know, to, it was something I spent a lot of time with thinking about what stories can I tell? And, and, you know, ultimately those stories are the stories about how I was moved and changed by these amazing individuals and not their stories per se, but my stories that, uh, that emerged through, through sort of living and, and spending time uh, with them. Uh, and in a couple of cases, the stories that I was gifted to tell, mm-hmm. um, you know, by particular individuals. And, and just to, to let people know about the book itself, it, it's broken up into, of course, chapters and, and talking about alienation and the great forgetting. And you get into some really interesting stuff in that chapter alone. Um, and that's where we first, I, I think, hear that, the, the indigenous perspective. Now, the other thing that we also get introduced to in that chapter, of course, and this is what I mean by the depth that you start to, to bring into the book, is we hear about Java Man. Mm-hmm. Right, which is a critical piece of history that, mm. that when we spend a little bit of time with it, we, we learn so much about how little we knew about ourselves. But when I say we, again, Western culture, the assumptions we made about the history of humanity until just very recent history, very recent scientific discoveries yeah. sort of have forced us to, to, to open our minds to, 
to what Indigenous people have known about our histories all along. And it also, I think, reflects, of course, that whole thing about that you you are kind of, sort of trying to get to in the book, and that is challenging man himself to try and think differently. And it really points out that idea that of the challenges that that w- were brought up around the discovery of Java Man, and, and even after he, he he died, the man who who, who discovered this, uh, he was still sort of an outcast. That's right. And so, for the listeners who may not know the story, you know, uh, Java Man is is what we call the very first um, fossil finding of of more or less anatomically modern human. It was the the once once scientists had started to grapple with uh, recognizing evolution as something that that involved humans, Homo sapiens as well, um, there was a, a desire to find the quote unquote missing link to to find fossil evidence that that linked us to non human quote unquote non human primates and and Java man was you know was a was an amazing find uh, and it was hotly contested because there were a lot of you know, a, a lot of people who thought there were a lot of stakes at at not finding that missing leak at, at you know, whether it was for uh, for religious reasons or scientific skepticism. But there's a real, you're right, there's a real parallel there to, to what we have today. And this, we still have this sort of understanding of humanity uh, that, that in Western culture, anyway, we, you know, we blame ourselves for a lot. And at the same time, we treat ourselves as very exceptional cre- uh, mm. beings. And, and Java Man, the discovery and acceptance of the discovery of Java Man was, was was one of these key moments where we had an opportunity to say, our history is different mm. than what we've been writing in textbooks, what we've been reading in mm. in, in 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 religious doctrine, and and what does that mean? Mm. What does that mean about how we organize our communities? What does that mean about how we relate to each other in the rest of the world? And a lot of people just didn't want to have that conversation, and a lot of people still don't want to have that conversation, which is why, <laughs> you know, in the 21st century, we're you know, I'm writing a book about it. Right. And then we go, you take us from Java Man, looking into the past, and you, you bolt us into the future by starting to talk about Star Trek. <laughs> which, which I went, Well, what? you know, that's a, there's a lot of time depth to, to, to that transition, I realize, and, and I guess I hadn't realized it at first, but, but you know, the... The understanding we have of the, you know, in Western culture of the exceptional nature of humanity is is part and parcel to modern issues of colonialism and uh, space colonial aspirations that mm. we saw in the science fiction of the '60s and '70s. Mm. Of, you know, the natural extension into space of manifest destiny mm. and and. And as a boy growing up with computers, at, you know, half of my time spent in front of a computer or a ham radio, and the other half spent outside. Um, you know, I was I was really struck by you know strange new worlds, and um, especially considering what I mentioned before, this fascination that I I sort of was always sort of latent in me with place and connections to place. And and so what we see in the culture of Star Trek about about you know posting our flag on planet after planet is, you know, at the time gave me a very different idea about what it meant to be a human and a hero and an explorer than, than, than I think what I have now. Yeah. And, and what I liked about the fact that you, when you brought in Star Trek is, is how you brought in that story, because you, you look at it very much like you look at the discovery of Java Man, for instance, where it challenges us to think about what are we really saying? What are we really looking at? 
and and how are we perceiving these things? Um, you know, it, it, as I was making notes about this, I thought about the Borg. Right? It's another perfect example of, <laughs> of there. Uh, I remember when, when I first heard the two, I think, strongest statements that come out of the Borg. Resistance is futile and you will be assimilated. Uh, you know, wow. Uh, there, there. That's that's colonialism, right? That's that's like wow. That's yeah. That is the you know one of the. It was subtle in the original, more subtle and mm. and not always there in the original series. But but one of the things that I I really feel Gene Roddenberry uh, did an amazing job with when he you know starting the the next generation the way he did with it with an overt um, story about the dangers of colonialism and um, imperial sort of supremacy uh that was bold mm. um and it was one of you know probably one of the things that that helped me start to wake up a little bit to how these these ideas we have about ourselves and the future in space uh, really do sort of embody this continued sort of spirit of of domination and supremacy mm. Here we are start talking about Star Trek, and I want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, and uh, this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is author Dr. Philip Loring, and he is a widely respected anthropologist, ecologist, and writer, and his work focuses on the intersection of sustainability, food systems, and social justice. And he is particularly interested in solutions where people and ecosystems Thrive Together, which really ties in, of course, with the book that we are talking about that he has written called Finding Our Niche Toward a Restorative Human Ecology. Philip, you pull a quote, chapter two, pristine. You start that chapter, of course, with a quote from Richard Nelson, who I understand his book, The The Island Within, is also from Alaska. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a book that he wrote about studying that area, as well as the indigenous people, uh, one of the indigenous people from that area. And what I thought was really interesting was, uh, the book says, it's often thought that the forest is a living cathedral, and then it goes on to say that it's it's sacredness itself. And I believe, of course, that indigenous people view the world and and everything as a sacredness, um, and and, to, and it should be treated as such. So I thought it was interesting that you're you're quoting this guy, <laughs> and it's not to take away from anything from that, but. It's interesting that we we find this throughout history that it's people that are that are writing it down that are that are are making these points. However, indigenous people have been viewing it this way just just living mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's it's a really tremendous point, and and you know you know we're you know, um, Richard Nelson and 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 his past. He was an amazing writer and spent many many years um, as a naturalist and an anthropologist in Alaska and and you know this book the island within was the one where he turned sort of his his gaze into himself and to, to understand mm. how his life has been changed through the work which was a bit of an inspiration for why there's so much personal reflection in finding our niche and and I struggled you know with with the the contradiction almost that you're mentioning that that you know like, you know here I am um, you know, quoting and citing another white male for for an idea that um, that is sort of inherent um, in countless indigenous teachings, and 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 it's a balance. It was a balance for me to respect and honor the storytellers that I learned from uh, in telling my own story, because it was reading the island within that was mm-hmm. part of the story that got mm-hmm. me where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but but also trying to acknowledge the fact that this is you know this, this is not a new. You're right. This is not a new discovery. Uh, it's more of of a Admitting that we're 
uh, we're undergoing a bit of an awakening and 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 I try as I go through this book to um, you know again without telling other people's stories for them um, transition uh, as the book moves on and then it's my own story and it moves on transition to um, relying on the words of of indigenous authors for example Robin Wall Kimmerer. You know, one of the other things that I remember, uh, and it might have been happening, and I might have been thinking about this person that you mentioned in the book right about the same time that his name came up. And I'm not sure if that's that's actually true or not. I'm just thinking it felt like it was right. And the person I'm talking about that you mentioned is Joseph Campbell, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 his book, uh, and, and of course the teachings and things that he brought forward um, about myth. And, and of course, uh, I, I was going, yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you put him in here. Well, you know, and uh, Joseph Campbell was one of, one of my early discoveries when I was doing my undergraduate degree in philosophy. And, and I, I learned a lot from from the power of myth, mm. um, a hero with a thousand faces. Mm. Both both at the time, in terms of sort of the more practical understandings of of what the hero's journey is, and how we see that in science fiction, how we see it in Star Wars, which Joseph Campbell, of course, loved to talk about Star Wars, <laughs> um, and and the hero's journey that that Luke mm. Skywalker undergoes, mm-hmm. and and but I also you know the thing that that Joseph Campbell I think was was alluding to in some of his other writings was 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 how you know the most powerful myths in our lives are the ones that don't need to be retold to be completely understood and agreed with mm. and and that i realized and i i learned from revisiting his work much later and 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 the kinds of myths i didn't realize the kinds of myths he was talking about until i started to grapple with this myth of of humanity as being this broken, naturally unsustainable, unsustainable, flawed being that is destined to only have negative relationships with the rest of the world, mm. that we're always going to damage, that if we want to be sustainable, we have to minimize our impact because our impact's always going to be bad. Um, and and I realized in, in sort of, again, working with Indigenous people who have lived for, you know, in, in their words since time immemorial with a very different set of principles and practices and patterns of and ways of being with, you know, living in their own niches, um, that that this was one of those myths that Joseph Campbell was talking about. It's the one we see in the tragedy of the commons. It's the one we see in sort of mainstream conservation that says the only way to keep a place natural is to build a fence around it and move everybody off of it. Mm. And and everybody just agrees with that. It's one of these Joseph Campbell powerful myths that doesn't ever need to be told to be agreed with. Right. You know, on that idea, and it's one of the things that I thought, wow, we could really just expand on this one forever and ever. And it kind of goes hand in hand with what you were just talking about there. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit of this. It's not very surprising that we think about ourselves as destroyers of nature. Humans have become extremely good at causing environmental problems. And, and you know, that whole idea of yeah, are we are we that flawed? Are we destined to, uh, you know, remain like this? Can we not change? Can we not better ourselves? Can we not find a better way? What is holding us back? Why why are we why are we inherently greedy? You know, all mm. those questions that you kind of grapple with in here as well. And mm. I thought, do you think that's something that each and every one of us have to do? on this planet in order to come to some kind of an understanding of, of how we can move ourselves forward to live in harmony with this planet. I, I really think that, 
we do. And I think it's tenfold, at least more important than, say, coming up with the next scientific revolution for achieving sustainability. I think that reflection um, and and spending time, more time with trying to understand who we really are is, uh, it's it's the foundation it has to be. Um, And and it can be so generative as, as it's challenging, no doubt, but it can also be so generative, which is what I learned in in, in work, you know, working through this book that, that, you know, the, it's a lot of how, a lot of the unspoken aspects of how we understand our, ourselves and our lives and our reality um, and what it takes to be a good person and what it takes to be successful. Uh, these are, you know, these aren't things that were explained to us in overt terms necessarily, but they were kind of whispered in our ear by the world around us. And a lot mm-hmm. of them are, are really ultimately problematic in terms of how we treat one another, how we treat our non-human neighbors and the rest of the natural world. And uh, if we give ourselves a little space to realize it doesn't have to be this way, that, that the, the, the problems that we see around us are, are not inherent problems that we need to try to avoid, but they're problems that aspects of our lives that have created, right? It's, I, I want to flip you know, the, the introspection allows us to flip it upside down. Like I mentioned, you know, the notion of the tragedy of the commons. Garrett Hardin mm-hmm. talked about, you know, this idea that we would, when left to our own devices, we would always destroy nature um, and we mm-hmm. needed strong governance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who have critiqued that have still always sort of Hardin, which, you know, um, was a pr- very particularly um, racist individual with, with ties to white supremacist organizations. But um, even the people who have critiqued Hardin's basic thesis still phrase it as though the, this tragedy is something that we need to solve, as opposed to saying, what is it about our lives that's creating this pattern of behavior? Mm. Because it's not the state of nature for us. Mm. And, and that you can only get to that sort of reconciliation with yourself and who we are and what our potential is through introspection. Mm. Uh, you can't just sort of, you, you can't do a scientific study to prove it to people, right. if that makes sense. Right. Now, I want to let also people know that uh, this book, the Finding Our Niche uh, by uh, Philip Loring, has also now received an award for the Nautilus Book Awards. He's received a silver award. So congratulations, uh, Philip, on that. Thanks for that. I, and I was particularly pleased. You know, what the um, Gleb Rigordetsky is an author mm. who wrote a wonderful book called Archipelago of Hope, which yes. a couple of years ago when it was published won their gold medal. And uh, I was really, really thrilled when they reached out to him to be a reader of this before it was published. And he actually provides back matter on the on the book. And so to be, you know, to, to get this um, award and sort of be in, in the great company um, that I am with him, I, it's, yeah. it was a really lovely surprise during some... <laughs> Some challenging pandemic times. Yeah, I bet. And uh, he does give a, a wonderful quote uh, for your book. Uh, so congratulations on that. Thanks. Now, you, you know, one of the characters we meet in the book is Pat Smith. And I was, uh, do you want to talk briefly about him? Yeah, I would, I would love to. You know, Pat, um, Patrick Smith was the, when I first met him, was the chief of a small village in interior Alaska called Minto. Um, and small Korikon Athabascan community. And I originally visited uh, Minto, which was about a three hour drive up a really bumpy dirt road from Fairbanks, Alaska, um, to, to talk about community gardening, which in the very, very early days of my graduate work was going to be the focus of my research. And, um, and Patrick became 
Pat became a really, really close friend. I spent a lot of time with him up in the Minto Flats, uh, in the woods around his community, out on the water, helping him get firewood, um, with, also with his, his son, Pat Jr. And, and it was a really sort of transformative friendship for me. And, and he was, you know, he had a bit of, at the time, it was both a friend and a father figure. I was still um, at that point in my life, um, avoiding and not coping with the, the passing of my own dad. And, mm. and, you know, the very first day that I met Pat, uh, I was supposed to go up there and talk to him about gardening. And what I ended up doing is helping him build uh, two caskets for community members who had passed away. And mm. so we got introduced to one another on this very sort of very unique terms and around a very somber occasion. Um, but it was, you know, it, it sparked a great friendship. And, and um, I think that, you know, I would like to think that I helped him with some things throughout the friendship and he certainly helped me uh, with a lot uh, and, and gave a lot of himself to me and, and helped me think about what grief is, what healing is and, and how to extend that from myself also to my relationship with, others into the world. Mm. You know, as I said, I felt there's so much in this book that we could talk about, and, and we haven't really gotten that far into the book, and we've t- talked about so much already. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I just want to mention this before we finish up. As I said, this is part one of two interviews that I'll be doing with Philip Loring on his book, Finding Our Niche. So please stay tuned for part two when we get into that. But there's other things in here, you know, chapter the chapter on Keystone and the Burren, that ties into your, your uh, Scottish and Irish heritage that you mentioned earlier, and going to, to talk about that and and um you know the, these wonderful things that that keystone even that uh, even that kind of uh the design that you talk about uh the arch that holds it together and and uh, this this burn area that becomes very important throughout this whole book um i know so there's lots to talk about do you want to briefly touch on that yeah sure and this is another of the metaphors in the book and and one of the brilliant metaphors from ecology that i think could be so powerful if we allow them into our own lives and you know the the burren is an amazing rocky craggy green landscape in western ireland and for the last you know decade or so they've uh, farmers there have been revitalizing a a very traditional grazing practice that goes back 7,000 years, um, but that had been discontinued for a, a number of years because people had moved to more, quote unquote, modern practices. But the move to modern practices, which took the cows off of this landscape, um, they actually grazed there traditionally in the wintertime. It's called a winterage. Uh, by taking them off of the land, uh, it, it pulled a keystone off of the land. And so invasive scrubs started to take over and other plants and animals started to get choked out and water quality started to change and fire hazards changed. And so there was this sort of this, you know, a lot of people today, you know, talk in very contested ways about cows, but this was an example where taking cows off of the land that the burn was not the burn without cows and cattle farmers. Mm. And so I went back there and I've spent, I have visited twice now to talk to people and learn about this revitalization of this old cultural practice. And it's a really amazing example of how people are, and they call it farming with nature. And um, that's a, mo- there's a movement across Europe now called farming with nature. Mm. And the whole premise is to understand the patterns and to look for things like keystones and, and recognize that, that if we pay attention, and if we look at the indicators in the world around us, and, and we can find these win-win scenarios where we can link our health and well-being and even economic prosperity with the health and well-being of the land. Right. 
Philip, it's been fascinating speaking with you. I thank you for taking the time to join us. I wish we had much, much more time to talk more, but we are going to have a part two to this. Maybe we'll have a part three. Who knows? Um, We'll (laughs) see how it goes. But uh, our time is up, and I just want to thank you again for coming on the show and talking about your your book, Finding Our Niche. Congratulations on the award for the Nautilus Book Awards, where you've received a silver award for that. And um, we wish you all the best with this, and I certainly hope a lot of people uh, find their way to this book and and find their way to read it because it, it's a lot of it's great reading and it's interesting it's a lot of fun like i said especially if you're a star trek fan but um also it's got some valu- really valuable information in here to make us think and to make everybody think about how can we uh, live more closely with this planet that that keeps us alive we have to find a way to do that so philip uh, thank you very much and i look forward to having you back on the show again Yeah, thank you. And I I really do look forward to continuing the conversation. All right. Take care. That is Dr. Philip Loring, a widely respected anthropologist, ecologist, and writer. We've been talking to him about his book, Finding Our Niche Toward a Restorative Human Ecology. Imagine a world where humanity was not destined to cause harm to the natural world, where win-win scenarios, people and nature thriving together are possible. I'm your host, David Moses. Thanks for listening to Moment of Truth. Don't go away, though. We're going to be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And you can also download the iHeartRadio app and take us with you anywhere you go. It is a pleasure to welcome back to the show. I have with me Mr. Philip Loring. He is an anthropologist who is also the chair of the Errol Chair in Food Policy and Society at the University of Guelph. He's also an author, and that is in fact what we're talking to him about today. We had him on a little bit earlier, and to talk about the book, the book is called Finding Our Niche, and it's a pleasure to have him back because I was. I wanted to have him do this in two parts because there's so much to talk about in this book. So this book, we're about halfway through this book. We got through the first part. So if you want to hear that first part, you can go to our SoundCloud because it is up on our SoundCloud if you look for Phil Loring, Finding Our Niche. So Phil, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks. It's good to be back. So, yes, we're picking up this book interview, as I believe we left off around chapter four, when we get into the engineer part of this as we we go forward. And by the way, Phil, where can people get this book if they're interested in in getting a copy? Is it on on Amazon? Is it at your local bookstore? Mm -hmm. It's it's in all all of the above. You know, I'm I'm a big fan of local bookstores and they can order it for you, but Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indigo Chapters, uh, you can get it anywhere. You can get it at the publisher's website, Fernwood mm. Publishing. Right. Now, Phil, uh, just before we came on last time, you had just been notified about your Nautilus Award. So um, <laughs> what what has transpired since then? Uh, well, they I got uh, a, a bunch of little silver stickers in the mail to put on <laughs> books, but uh, um, I don't have a big stick, stack of books to put them on, but, but I put them on my own personal copy. <laughs> <laughs> I was really, I was really um, pleased for that. That was a really nice surprise. Mm-hmm. It, it sure was. And again, you know, I want to thank you for sending me this book. It really has been an eye opener, and I, I can't help but think about 
you know, the things we talked about and, and the things that you brought forward in the book, you know, we talked about uh, Star Trek because you, you referenced that. Uh, you, you reference a number of things uh, throughout the book. As we get more into the, the heart of the book and about the, the, the things that you look at in the second half, and, and you sort of look at this not only as a way of, of saying bees, ants, you know, clams ha- have a way of surviving together to some degree and building up this society. But you also point out about how, for instance, you were digging on a beach somewhere, um, and and the first time you dug your your shovel into the ground, you got this this smell um, and that decaying smell, and that was because there wasn't an interaction between. Uh, humans that were were digging for clams, and they mm-hmm. got so populous that they just kept going and going, and eventually they they died out. Um, do you want to elaborate? I'm probably doing a poor job of, of you know reiterating the story. Sure, happy to. You know the 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 clam beaches in coastal British Columbia. Or when I experienced those, they were one of the first times that I I experienced in practice a lot of the ideas that I had in my head about the way that people could in a or that I had read on the page that people could interact in a positive way uh, with the world around them, meet their own needs for food, environment, you know, sh- safety, shelter, while also in you know contributing to those environments and improving biodiversity you know the clam gardens the clam gardens work because there are people there interacting with those beaches tending them building them up um, digging uh, providing that ecological disturbance regime and and it's a win-win it is a a really really tremendously uh, powerful win-win when you walk along the the clam beaches they are so the walls the rock walls that that the coast salish people build on these beaches are so rich with biodiversity it's really just just amazing Hmm. And and that very first time I I dug uh, on one of these beaches, it was it was a beach that was about to um, enter into a, a clam garden restoration project. It had not been tended for for many decades, if not hundreds of years. Hmm. And because it was designed by in the local indigenous peoples to be a clam garden, and then had been left alone, uh, it had it had just gotten overcrowded with clams to the point where what the way that they described it was this beach had died. Uh, this beach needed to be brought back, uh, and it is now back. Uh, it's remarkable hmm. um, because of the interaction and the care uh, and the relationship that people have developed uh, with the beach and with the clams, with hmm. the rock walls. Hmm. And that's so. So that kind of is is the starting point of as we get further into this book and how we kind of find our way to the end of this book about man's interaction with the world. However, you start to give examples of, of, of showing, and this is, I, I think, part of why you've named it Finding Our Niche. It's about how do we start to find a way to to not necessarily have a heavy, heavy footprint on things, but how do we start interacting and living with things in just like indigenous people have been doing for millennia, living in harmony um, and and uh, finding a way that we we don't have to change things so much that they have to fall into that category of the way we have now become, which you point out in the book, this industrialized way of living, which, of course, means that it's a narrow sort of a view where it has to line up and it has to meet a certain either working or sustaining itself for our benefit, not necessarily 
being a two-way street or not necessarily being something that is harmonious for both them and us. And that's another thing that you actually point out about, right? That's a, it's an actual way of existence that you, you refer to mm-hmm. in the book. It's the probiotis, and that's what you're talking about. It's the, the mutualism and... Commensalism, yeah, yeah. sort of that, which is, you know, a fancy word for saying eating at the same table <laughs> and, or, you know, recognizing kinship and relationship. And, and you're right. The, you know, the, when we get into this point in the book, the chapter on engineers, you know, engineers is such a modern word. Mm-hmm. It's such a, you know, we think about skyscrapers, not, not, you know, more natural bucolic mm-hmm. beachscapes, right? right? And so that is, that cognitive dissonance was why I think this point of the book is such a, a, a point of inflection. Um, the, because we've come to think about, you know, we, we see the great benefits of this very industrialized approach to being engineers and controlling everything, but we also see it's great, the, the, the challenges it causes, climate change, environmental degradation. Um, and then, but we've come to imagine it as an either or. And, and so the, that the goal has to be, how do we minimize our footprint? Uh, thinking that the footprint is an impact, that it's a negative thing, as opposed to thinking about how can we interact? How can we have a healthful footprint or a regenerative footprint where we don't have to feel bad about ourselves and the impacts of our lives? We just have to be mindful and caring and respectful and, and, and operate within a niche that, that benefits not just us, but life around us. Yes, and you give uh, those examples. The other thing that comes to mind is is the gardening example. I think it's a little bit further mm-hmm. on where you talk about, and I think it's in Alaska, where uh, it might be the the um, the missionaries that are looking at the indigenous people and they're saying, uh, you know, what they really need is to establish a way of gardening, and uh, and then there's there's some written documents about that they're just either not smart enough, they don't know how to do this properly, when in fact, uh, because of, of their uh, longevity on the earth and the way of working in harmony, they understood it better than the missionaries because it was cyclical and they were l- right. working with the cycles of the garden. It's a really great example of learning to fit our livelihood strategies within the, the patterns and processes of the ecosystems and the lands and, and seascape or coastal areas that we inhabit. Uh, so that's a really great example, you know, and, and sort of a, th- a thread through this whole book is, is coming to terms with the colonial mission and the, the, this idea of saving, um, you know, and, and improving and, and industrializing and enlightening um, Turtle Island in North America, mm-hmm. um, you know, the settler mission um, in Alaska that played out very much in terms of, you know, and you can, I found the, the letters in archives of, um, you know, uh, missionaries talking about how, how indigenous people in the state didn't understand quote unquote uh, their situation. And, and we just need to get them farming. And, uh, and, and in the communities that I visited and where I interviewed the elders who were, had experiences with these, um, gardening programs, uh, you know, they, they chuckle about it and they say, you know, we knew perfectly well how powerful gardens could be and we were happy to do it unless it made more sense to be out trapping for muskrat right. or right. hair or furs. Yeah. And, and, and so when, when people in these communities, you know, those, those fur bearers have a very cyclical uh, populational pattern of, of 10 plus or minus years. And, and so there'd be years when folks would stay home in the spring and they'd plant really amazing productive gardens. And then a few years later, they'd abandon them and not plant anything because it was better to be out trapping. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so they took this new, what we, a lot of people tend to think of as a, um, as a settler technology farming and they found, and they incorporated that into their seasonal round in a way that worked for them. Mm-hmm. 
you you also uh, get back into the the urban living side of things as well, and you you give some examples of of how urban cities, of course, have affected wildlife, as we all know, but also you talk about some of the some of the kind of life that that has done well with city or has adapted to our way of life you, you talk about pigeons you talk about some of the prey that live on these uh on these other uh birds and things as well that seem to have have done okay with 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 urban settings yeah well and and it's another great example of what what does our you know sort of mainstream western culture think of as more prototypically human and industrial and engineered but urban cities right but really ur- urban areas with skyscrapers and 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 those places you know they're not what come to mind for a lot of people if you talk about a natural ecosystem but urban communities do have urban ecology and um, some species have done better in urban places or not um, and and the lesson that I'm, I'm trying to get at in this section where I talk about uh, urban spaces is that it's possible that they're not um, it's not um, one or the other it's mm. possible to think about urban spaces that let the wild in in a healthful way and while also bringing us all of the efficiencies and benefits that living in urban spaces brings because there's a lot of efficiency to living close to one another and mm. and you know energy use and access to food and so f- and transportation mm. um, there's a lot of benefits to urban spaces but if we're mindful again it's all about mindfulness and and not thinking about nature sort of in an antagonistic way how do we keep it out but how do we let it in right. you know raptors have done really well in cities where we've let them in um, pigeons you know if, if we're not for the urban and pigeon raptors that relied on the passenger pigeon probably would have gone the way of the passenger pigeon mm. um and and so there's there's space mm. even in the most prototypically you know sort of characteristically human densely populated spaces like urban urban um cities uh, it's possible to let the wild back in mm. you know the other uh the other thing that you talk about in the book and and this really uh, really starts to get into uh, how you start to bring the story back around full circle uh, and it is cyclical we're going to talk about the cycles of things and that is water you know you talk about the the problem of water but you also talk about and you give a really good example of of how man has manipulated water of course with the Hoover Dam you mm-hmm. talk about that and how you know the uh, the the Colorado River and the impact that had of of dam- it and what that caused and, and and even reaches outside of the United States and how that affected Mexico and and of course the then there's the wastewater from that and the, the salt water that comes out of that in the wastewater and and what that re, that generated and then you get us into how even though that is man-made and there's this wastewater this this salt water that's created it it then creates something by accident and i guess uh life starts to adapt to naturally around it yeah la cienega de santa clara mm-hmm. wetlands mm-hmm. the accidental wetlands yeah. uh, in sonora mexico mm-hmm. you know this is a part of what used to be the colorado river delta Yep. You know, before the Humber Dam and all the other dams on the Colorado River, when the Colorado reached the Sea of Cortez, it was a vast delta, mm. a rich riparian wetlands um, that connected to the Sea of Cortez. Um, and it was, and, and to some extent continues to be home to many you know, it's verdant, diverse species, um, and some of which are endangered now, of course, because of the loss of habitat. But as you say, um, you know, the for a long time, water... Um, 
between from the Colorado between the United States and, and Mexico wasn't very well regulated, and um, and so agricultural wastewater, which is very high in, in salt, was just being dumped back into the mainstream into into Mexico until they finally raised a you know a, enough of an alarm about it that that the U.S. had to build this canal to divert the agricultural wastewater. And and when when the Corps of Engineers built that canal, they got into the middle of the Sonoran Desert, looked around, didn't see anybody, and said, okay, we've gone far enough, uh, and let the water th- flow. And and there you go. Here springs up this little piece of the old delta that used to be there to create this new wetlands, and it's thriving, and the people who, who live in that area are, are are working in that wetlands. They're 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 rebuilding a relationship with the delta that used to be. Hmm. Yes. And of course, water now becomes a very important part of the rest of the book as well. When you you talk about Mexico, you introduce that chapter, of course, chapter five. What I wrote down on one of the pages here was about the invasive species and and uh, what has happened with that and the the cedar, right? The cedar... uh, Salt cedar. The salt cedar. The other thing I wrote down that we have been dealing with, and that's the Phragmites, which are, have been invasive to this area, correct? I was going to say invasive species are a really interesting category and they're, you know, a troublesome category in how we think about how we relate to the, the natural mm-hmm. world because you know, we introduce them and you know, they, they get tangled up in our notions of what we think is original or natural. Uh, but some places they can really disrupt you know what is there and what people want to see there you know in the great lakes or or it but in some places they can also turn out to be really good habitat or maybe drought resistant or maybe okay in fire and 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 salt cedar in 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 the delta is one of those really complicated situations where it's not just cut and dry uh, a lot of people treat it as though it's the quote unquote scourge of the west but it's also had some benefits This is Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Philip Loring. This is part two of an interview on his book, Finding Our Niche. One of the quotes you you put in here about, it's around the Hoover Dam, I guess, and around the desert area, and and it has to do with the Boulder Dam and Franklin Roosevelt uh, talking about this, and he refers to it as an unpeopled area. You you point that out, and, and you say that, you know, this colonial view... Uh, of of you know because it's unpeopled or it looks barren that you know uh, that it has no value um, and it's a sort of a narrow view to take and that narrow view I thought you also reflected when you were talking to someone in a park uh, one of the parks in the U S and and he said the the thing with climate uh, was just another fight that they would have to deal with and that for him whatever means they could use to keep this park looking like it was a hundred years ago, uh, however that was, um, was okay. Whether it's using chemicals or whatever it might be, and and I just thought, yeah, that's a that's a really kind of interesting and narrow view. And I, but it also makes you you consider how do other people see things. And and so this is a this is a, another one of these really messy examples, and it it gets to your point about how how people think about the land really preconditions. You know, it, it, on the one hand, in the case like the Hoover Dam and Roosevelt, uh, it illustrates what they want to do. You know, the you know when 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 Roosevelt was saying this was a barren, unpeopled landscape. You know that that um, reinforced that the settler colonizing mission mm. of doing something with it, even though it was not unpeopled. Mm-hmm. Right? It's mm-hmm. um, indigenous territory, um, and it's, it's including where where the lake um, was when they that they mm. when they flooded the area for the dam. Mm. On the other hand, you have a park in Alaska, which is what you're talking about, where that 
you know, this notion of the, of what's natural should be kept that way at all costs. Right. Um, and it all breaks down to sort of what, what we see in the land, what we think it's for, uh, and and the trajectory that it's on or that it's set on. And and so pests, again, this is this human-made category. It's a pest because it's something bad for something we want to do. Phylloxera was was a wine blight that almost made it so we wouldn't have wine in this world. Um, you know, it it knocked out the the majority of wine production in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about rural Spain, where mm-hmm. which was the last part of rural of Europe to um to experience this. And, and I, I bring it up because it, it's a good example of tr- how trajectories play out, how the legacies of what we do, you know, hundreds of years ago uh, can very much condition uh, how we experience things today. Uh, because when, when the wineries of rural Spain were abandoned because of phylloxera, uh, they started to reforest. Uh, you know, people moved away. Uh, they started to reforest, but they reforested differently because yes. the monks who had started those winer- um, wineries had terraced, yes. had cut down the forests, yes. and had built these rock terraces. That's right. Uh, rock walls show up a lot in this book, uh, but these rock terraces—they were great for for um, for vineyards. But once the trees started coming back in, it allowed them to uh, sort of like the clams to come in more densely. Yes. And and so you started to get denser stands and the afforestation started to become a fire problem and you started to get different species and it started to become a water problem. And so while we think about trees growing back somewhere as being a necessarily good thing from a conservation perspective, in rural Spain, the trajectory has made it problematic. And, and again, going back to that wine example, and because you, it was then through, um, through bringing something from the States, right, that was able mm-hmm. to protect the root. So that's that's something that was that man was able to do to help with right. the wine. Yeah, yeah. University of Missouri um, saved wine um, mm. by um, developing a better rootstock for mm. um, for for grapes for um, grapevines that that was phylloxera resistant. Um, and you know, it it the, there's so much to consider in a case like this, or many of the other cases that I talk about in the book. But but I don't want the upshot of that to be that we have to all be experts, mm. you know, and, you know, and, you know, there's a difference between knowing every last little nuance of how an ecosystem works and which is a huge burden. Mm. And just thinking about good, having good relationships, relationships of care and thinking forward as, as many of my indigenous friends say with seven generations mm. and have, having that long thought, recognizing that trajectories and that you know, we can lock ourselves in to particular trajectories, that there will be legacies of our actions that are further down the road than will affect us. Um, and, and we don't need to be experts to avoid the bad ones, right? We don't need to know every last little detail of every ecosystem and how it works. Um, we just need to pay attention to the relationships. Mm. And that relationship with the cycles, you, you tend, you go on about a river and the water and, and flowing like a, a river and mm. how the meandering of a river is not, um, it, it, you know, people look at it and it just meanders. They think it's, it's not, uh, it has no, no specific way of doing it. And yet uh, you give the example of, of an indigenous person saying, no, it's, it's specific to where it's going. And you mm. give the example of what would it be like if it were going from A to B like a crow flies? You know, uh, if a river went, it, it would miss all of these things. It's like a story. It's like a life that it's taking on. No, even our lives are not a straight line. The whole idea about the flowing like a river, and, and that's what it all comes back to, is living and, and looking, making changes, adapting, being adaptable. And, and that's the finding our niche, is, is to be able to uh, change, adapt, and, and even though it might not be easy, 
we have to find ways to make those changes so that we can live uh, in harmony uh, with with the planet, much like indigenous people have been doing and saying. Yeah, you know, metaphors, whether it's a garden or a river, they're really powerful. And that's why I spend so much time on them in this book. And I remember as a young environment-minded um, undergraduate the first time I read Aldo Leopold and and his notion of thinking like a mountain. And I always felt like that only got us so far. You know, mm. it's okay, great. We can think that way, but 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 what do we do? Mm. And and that's, you know, this metaphor of walking like a river. I remember when the first time I had a long conversation of, of with about the river's meander was with I think it was with Patrick. Um, mm. I, I realized, you know, it's the river, you know, meanders in conversation with all of the life around it. And if it didn't, that life wouldn't be there. Uh, and now, isn't that a, a lovely metaphor for how we might walk? Um, mm-hmm. Walk in conversation with everything that we're going to contact and touch and impact and 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 rely upon. Uh, and and don't get so obsessed with the straight lines, as you say. You know, if a river just went from point A to point B, there'd be no water for anything. All the mm-hmm. life would go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I feel like when when you have a metaphor to work with, it it it's it's helpful. It helps you find a way to fit in. It helps you uh, maybe solve a problem that the person who came up with the metaphor wasn't even thinking, like in, in the case of being there. Um, because that's kind of who we are, I think, is, you know, all we have to go on are our metaphors and stories. And, mm. and, um, for, for, and, and we've, got a lot, we've got a lot to work on. We've got a lot of challenges ahead of us. But if we, if we just keep going with the vision and the metaphors about ourselves, about our nature, about our humanity, and about what counts as wild in nature if we keep going with the old ones that got us into this mess there's no way we're going to dig ourselves out of it right mm. and, and you know lastly i guess the, the the point you make is to not think of these things as as such a big deal in, in terms of we don't have to solve these things from an industrial mindset uh, if we look at these things more i guess on a on a a, a, a local level we can see ways to uh, make changes and adapt, much like solar power. Uh, and you know, you point, you talk about the industrialization uh, in the book about you know that's why we we hear uh, industrialized uh, organizations talking about things as well. It might not work, you know, it couldn't work on this level because they're thinking about it from their perspective. They're thinking mm-hmm. about it about controlling it first of all. You bring you point that out because by having things in our control it's out of their control and if we can grow for instance plants uh seasonally and and grow those things we don't have to necessarily have fresh fruit all year round like you say we can can these things and so you give a lot of examples about how we can start to look at these things to bring it back into our control i guess it was much like that (laughs) a long time ago right people existed Mm -hmm. in smaller groups and they would grow gardens they would have things more at the local level which is perhaps the way we need to start looking at the world and saying, yeah, maybe we don't need to be on these massive grids. We don't need to be uh, looking at things this way. We need to start seeing how we can bring it back down to a smaller level so we can control things and have that control. You know, if we had solar panels, we could maybe generate our own power. Uh, It doesn't have to be on a huge grid. We then wouldn't have to worry about if the power went down because we'd have our own power. There's a lot of benefits to thinking differently. But like you say, it's it's not easy to make these changes. It's not, but there's a trap in in being convinced that some of these problems are too big to solve, and mm. and that's you know the industrial way of thinking is that you have mm-hmm. to solve it all at once. And right. c- problems like climate change, they're enormous, and they they're too big to solve until all of a sudden they're not. Mm. 
Uh, And I really like the phrase, you know, trying to take small steps, taking small steps to make an expansive vision possible. Mm -hmm. And, and it's not about small steps that take us backwards. You know, whenever you talk about the successes of the past or of indigenous people or of other traditional societies, you know, one of the most common critiques I hear is, so you're saying we ought to go back to doing X, Y, Z to being hunter gatherers or or whatever. Right. Mm. And, and my response is always, well, I'm not saying that we should go back to anything. I'm saying we should look at what used to work and be creative and ask how can that help us do something new and innovative and more sustainable in the future? Mm. Now, I'm saying we're really great at inventing as, as a species, and we just need to continue to do that. Uh, but if we if we turn off all the traditional wisdom and the knowledge of what's worked in the past and our willingness, if we turn off our willingness to look at nature, which is the number one source of information about how to live sustainably on this right. planet, right. Uh, then our innovations are not going to be very good. Right. If we look to them, we've got a much better chance. Right. Phil, we'll have to leave it there, but it's been fascinating speaking with you. I want to thank you for your book. I've really enjoyed reading it, Finding Our Niche. People can get it, as you say, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, and they can pick it up at their local bookstore as well and read it. It is very much worthwhile reading. A lot of really great information and examples of ways to look at how we might be able to change our lives to live more sustainably and live in harmony with this planet. There is so much more in here, Phil. I wish we could discuss but maybe that is for another time. But I do want to thank you for coming back onto the show again to discuss your book, Finding Our Niche, and congratulations on uh, on, on your, your uh, award, the Nautilus Award for this book, and I uh, wish you all the best in the future. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I've really enjoyed this conversation. That is Philip Loring, and he is, of course, an author uh, for the book, Finding Our Niche. That is our show for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.